Work is no longer just about productivity and metrics. It's about people. And when we focus on positivity, communication, belonging, and development, the numbers take care of themselves. This is Work Human Radio, where we talk to authors, researchers, and business leaders about the latest trends making work more human around the world. Here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to another Work Human Radio. My name is Mike Wood. If you notice, my voice might be a little low and gravelly today because I've been fighting a cold. But I'm here as always at work getting everybody else sick and joined by the lovely Sarah Payne. Hi, Sarah. Is that a Nashville accent I hear? No, I don't know what this is. (laughs) I've been playing a lot of Red Dead Redemption, too, so it could be some sort of old West gunslinger (laughs) in there. But enough of that and me spreading the plague through the airwaves. Thanks for that, Mike. Yeah, yeah, we're in a tight space. (laughs) Um, (laughs) This week you talked to Teo Roxon, and he is going to be at Work Human, and he gave us a sneak preview of what he's going to be talking about, correct? Yep. So his dad actually was an ambassador, so growing up he lived in a lot of different countries, so we talked about how to communicate across different cultures and how to find common ground and fight bias. Good. Like, for example, if you have a gravelly voice and someone has a nice, beautiful <laughs> exactly. voice, you can find this common medium where you both can get through a podcast interview the same, right? Yep. Well, so here's Sarah's interview with Teo Roxon. Hopefully the next time I'm on the radio, I sound a little bit better. But I look forward to seeing everybody that's going to work human in Nashville this year. It's the 18th through the 21st. If you go to www.workhuman.com, you can still get a ticket, but they're going to be selling fast because we got George Clooney, we got Viola Davis, we got Gina Davis, and who knows who else? Probably 60 of the best business HR leaders around. So we hope to see you there. Visit workhuman.com. And here's Sarah's interview with Teo Roxon. Well, Teo, I just wanted to, first off, welcome you to Work Human Radio. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Sarah. It's a pleasure. So I wanted to kick things off with a bit about your background and your global identity. So I describe myself as a cultural translator and someone as a third culture kid. I'll explain those in a few, but I grew up as the son of a diplomat and as a Nigerian. I grew up in five countries and four continents, as well as two dictatorships before I was 18. So a lot of my formative years were spent being in between different cultures. And the reason we moved around so much is because my dad was a diplomat. And when your dad is a diplomat, you know, you sort of just go away, he goes. But in the process, I had a bit of an identity crisis where I couldn't quite figure out, you know, what my true identity was. You know, I would wonder if I was you know, Nigerian enough, if I was black enough, if I was bad enough, because you know, people always seem to put you in boxes at different ages. But in the process of doing that, I was able to sort of deal with that nuance. And then I quickly learned that my global identity is what people have now called a third culture kid or TCK. And essentially, these are traits that refer to people that spent the formative periods of their lives outside of the parents' cultures, the so missionary kids, diplomatic kids, army brats, and things like that. So. Yeah, I mean, my global identity became, you know, the person I am, regardless of where I live. And, you know, instead of being in a black and white world, I just learned how to operate in nuance and be comfortable with that person. And that essentially became the identity that I I formed myself on. So, yeah, yeah, that's a little bit about that. And obviously, living in a dictatorship, the first nine years of my life, two of them, 
it shaped my worldview and furthered my interest in equality and justice. Mm. And I'm sure that's a good perspective to have, and I'm sure it gives you a sense of appreciation, especially for being in the United States now, based in New York City. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm still very much Nigerian, and I go back there often, and it's the only past that I have. But the sense of appreciation that I have is um, for freedom, especially freedom of speech and equality. A lot of the things that I appreciate about democratic regime, and Nigeria is now democratic, but there's the ability to voice out your opinions without fear of, uh, you know, exile. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yes. <laughs> so, something I'm curious about, I read in your bio, was the social experiment that you conducted when you moved to New York City. So, can you tell us a bit yeah. about that? Yeah, yeah. So when I moved to New York City, I moved to New York City in 2013 to get my MBA at Fordham University. And it was at a time in my life when I decided that I, you know, I had all these ideas in my head. I've always been a writer since I was 15. I've always written about global affairs and different ways that we can essentially be better as humans. And when I came to New York City in the process of transitioning out of a career, I was like, why don't I just figure out the question that has plagued me most of my life? You know, why do we live in a globalized and digitalized world and still have problems connecting across cultures. I mean, we seem to have all the tools around us, internet and everything, but we still have this inability, seemingly, to understand each other. And so I decided that the experiment I would do would be to interview people, leaders, and different people, thought leaders across the world from different continents to really dive into that. And I launched a podcast called As Told by Nomads, which is ultimately what launched my career, but it's, I do it every week. And throughout the podcast, you started to see a lot of the commonalities. Right? You know, a lot of people didn't, you know, it really comes down to people not understanding how to deal with their biases or how to listen beyond their ego or when people come across people that they're similar to, you know, you want to stay with that because we have a very tribalistic mindset. But yeah, as I was, you know, sort of working and interviewing people and then sharing my thoughts, that led to, you know, me speaking and ultimately consulting. But yeah, it was just a curious experiment I had. And it was right around the time podcasts were getting, were just starting. And I just thought, why don't I just launch mine? And then that's how the experiment started. Well, we're obviously big fans of podcasts here at Global Force. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, I love, you know, some of your background about your dad being a diplomat. And you've talked about this in your speeches, but... Why do you think that the idea of diplomacy is so important to our discussion about diversity and inclusion? Well, yeah, I think it's so important because it really hones in on the fact that you have to understand the differences around you and find the commonalities that exist within them. I think too many times when, especially in society, we've been sort of conditioned to balk at things that are different from us. And if you're a diplomat, you know, you're essentially posted to another country to represent that country, and you're going to be... You know, in my case, we were in Vietnam, Sweden, Burkina Faso, and the United States. So all these countries were vastly different, different languages, different cultures, different ways of doing things. The way for my dad to be successful would not have been to be like, oh, I'm in this country. I have to find people that think like me. He had to understand what was going on around him and, you know, find the commonalities that existed within right. him so that he could, you know, exist. And that's very much the same thing with diversity and inclusion. You know, inclusion is about creating an environment of belonging. And diversity is really about the differences around us. And it's not just in the physical or in the orientation, but it's also in our way of thinking. So it's a full, you know, holistic type of approach. And yeah, so whenever I talk about the art of diplomacy, I'm really encouraging people to 
really stretch their way of thinking and try to put themselves outside the box. And you would intentionally put themselves in positions where they are the minority where they, they are. And so that they understand the different way of doing things. I think it broadens your perspectives. If, uh, it deepens your empathy, the empathetic muscles, and then it allows you to see what is our connective tissue and a connective thread. And you were talking about how we have a global economy, you know, even within one company, you could have employees across countries. So is bias inevitable in the workplace, do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, bias is inevitable as a human, period. It's the way we categorize, the way we group, the way we understand the world, the way many times in the past it's made us feel safe. You know, that's how we know we're not supposed to go in front of a lion. But in the workplace, it's definitely inevitable. I've you know, I've seen it, I've been part of it, but the way it shows up, it could be agenda bias, it could be advancement bias, it could be just trying to figure out to hire people or fire people or promote people. But when you think about bias in the workplace, the best thing to do is to first acknowledge it. That's why there are a lot of unconscious bias workshops and workplaces. You know, I, for example, exist in the intersection of being international, being black, being African, that happens to sound like someone that maybe is not your typical African. And I remember sometimes when I was applying to jobs, people might, they might have read my first name or seen my nationality and they made a lot of assumptions. I've also been a consultant. I'm a, I've been a consultant for many years now, a few years now. And whenever I work with recruiters, I've had this statement said to me. And he, this gentleman showed me his process. He said, I look at the LinkedIn profile, look at the school, the schools that they've gone to, if it's Ivy League, and then I look at the face to see if he's and you know, conventionally handsome and then the years of experience, right? Wow. So these are straight up words that he said to me. And all these things are biases, right? It's nothing to do with the person's ability to work. It's more about this is an easier approach. People sometimes do that with names as well. You know, that's why sometimes, you know, whether it's a name that's Hispanic or, a, you know, Arabic or African, if it's a name, they might assume that your English isn't good. All these things like that. And if your English isn't good, that speaks to your ability. All those subtle things play a role into, you know, how you interact in the workplace, who you bring into the office and things like that. So you mentioned that you've been a consultant for a few years now. Do you have any interesting mm-hmm. stories that you could share from your work helping companies connect? Sure. So I was working with this uh, multinational company. They had offices in India and the U.S. And when I was brought on, there was a this big disconnect because it seemed like whenever assignment was sent to India, it wasn't done on time. And they wanted me to sort of figure out how to deal with the disconnect because India is a big market for them. And so when I was investigating and I finally, you know, I did some surveys and I went to each of the offices to talk to, to them, or I had a phone call with each of the, the leaders, it turns out that, you know, in Indian culture, at least the culture that, that the workplace, they had a hard time saying no to anyone that was a boss because that's not how they grew up in terms of the local area. And so even if they couldn't do the job or the timing wasn't there, they were conditioned to say, you know, yes. And then on the American side, they didn't understand that that was that culture nuance, but they also didn't understand that the time zones mattered. And so when you said the time, <laughs> they were applying American sensibilities to that. And that had further deepened the disconnect. And that was just all based on no one connecting or no one communicating or no one understanding the nuance. And then all those could have been handled if like two leaders of the companies and two divisions in India and America said, hey, this is how we like to do work. And these are some of the the unspoken rules and things like that. 
in case there's any difficulties, let me know. Or if you do come across any difficulties, please feel free to let me know and don't let it turn into a, a rumor mill and a gossip bit. So that was one example. And then another example was uh, I worked at a startup where they did business, a lot of business in Europe. So the CEO thought that it would be more effective to maybe push the time to the start of the day mm-hmm. back from, you know, 9 a.m. to 8 a.m. And, you know, that one hour advantage would be a good way to catch up with Germany and, and, uh, and England. Yeah. Yep. Just, yeah, yeah. And you as well know, I mean, Dublin, Ireland is the headquarters of uh, or where you work. But he did that thinking, you know, with the best intention that, you know, this would be the best way they could, you know, take advantage of sales and not have to do it the next day. But what had happened was a lot of them then ended up getting a lot of the deals while the women in the company, not all the women, but some of the women, weren't able to come on time because they had daycare. Or they had to right, drop daycare drop-off. Or off. things like that. I know that well. Yeah, <laughs> drop-off. Yeah, exactly. And then that, that time pushback was not convenient. And when I came on, it was right about a year. And what was happening was the biases were fueled, where the men were saying, women are lazy, blah, 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 and all that. And the women were like, no one ever gets the opportunities. And when we did that, it was like, you didn't even ask your team how this would affect their day-to-day, right? right. And so it was just as subtle as that. And that fueled the biases, but, you know, when it gets to that level, you have to do a lot of simple, hey, I was wrong, this is what happened, blah, blah, blah. but by then people have already dug in. There's a lot of human nature. Some people have confirmed their biases, and they're like, right. yep, no, this is it, this is it. So some of things like that. It's always all these little miscommunications that people like to use to either confirm the biases or try to, you know, acknowledge them. Well, another work human speaker, Cy Wakeman, she always talks about the story that you tell yourself in your head. And like, if people don't have the information, they tend to fill in the gaps, like you were saying, and yeah. confirm the yeah. bias and kind of yeah. dig themselves in a yeah. hole. So it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting to hear just some of those small little nuances, how it can kind of grow into this big miscommunication. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a great point. I mean, if you don't acknowledge your biases or work in them, you're right. You're going to fill in the gaps with what you've learned. Maybe you learned it from school. You watched it on TV. Your parents told you. So your biases, it's just going to be a shortcut. It's like your brain is just going to process information. Oh, that person didn't do it because of this. Oh, it must be because of that. Well, it happens with, you know, whenever there are shootings or whenever there's a bomb or something. I thought people tell me, you know, their first thought would be, well, that person must be a Muslim or Arab or, or if it's a crime, like, oh, maybe that person was black or they're looking for that. That's how it is because it's already whether it's true or not. And then when it's true or whatever, it confirms your bias. Like, yeah, I knew it. See? <laughs> so, so it's all these little subtle things, even on a positive side, whether it's like someone got picked for the athlete in the basketball thing. Oh, yeah, that person probably is a, you know, it's a black kid that can jump on it from somewhere. And then, you know, like, yep, see, no white person ever, you know, gets picked number one. It's all these little little things, whether they're true or not, it's what we just mentally think. And I do think it's good to have a sense of humor about it sometimes, too, because we're all guilty of it. And yeah. sometimes it's not even yeah. bad intentions, you know, where we just need yeah. to be reminded of it. Absolutely. I think people have misunderstood bias and thought it was a negative thing. People often think if you say you're biased, all the time that it means you're like a racist, bigot, or sexist. It, it can't get to that level if you allow it to, but that's not the point. The point is more when we need to be aware of when it's 
becoming detrimental. It's not always a detrimental thing. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, that's how we wouldn't have evolved as humans if we didn't have all these pieces of information that were shortcut. But I think we are at a point now, regardless of where you feel or you think about politics, where we do have to acknowledge and have some uncomfortable conversations because mm -hmm. a lot of decisions are being made based on very well misinformed <laughs> information about a whole groups of people, which can end up being dangerous. And if we don't know how to handle those conversations, or the youth is going to pick up on the same habits. So. so I wanted to close with just a preview of your session at Work Human. Yes, 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 yes. So I'm going to be talking about how to effectively connect across cultures. I'm actually um, working on a book on that, but it's about how to effectively connect across cultures in divisive times. I mentioned earlier that I spent the first nine years of my life in the two dictatorships, but something that I've, I've always been interested in is really providing people with the tools to understand the, the world around them. And because we live in the most globalized time, the most visualized time. So that means who you work, who you go to school with, who your colleagues are, inevitably going to come from different backgrounds. But what I've noticed in the past few years is that a lot of uh, what we do is we're too reactive. Uh, we don't take the time to actually understand another point of view. And then if, if there's another point of view, we've, all, we've almost seen as a threat. And I want us to get back to the basics of understanding that, hey, just because something is different from you, it doesn't mean it's wrong one. It doesn't mean that you can't learn from it. And so, you know, <laughs> I, I'm a naturally optimistic person. and I believe we can get there. But I think we need to basically create the world that we want to exist in because I've not been a fan of the recent populist movement, so you could say. And I feel like we can get back to um, humanity and compassion if we truly focus on connecting rather than dividing. Well, we definitely agree. And I, I like your optimism there. It's not shared, but if someone has, uh, so yes. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Teo. And we look forward to seeing you in March. I look forward to being there. It's going to be fun. Thank you for having me. If you want to see business leaders, culture keepers, and industry experts come together to share the latest research and ideas for making work more human, you need to be at WorkHuman March 18th through the 21st in Nashville. Visit WorkHuman.com to see the full lineup of speakers and reserve your spot in the number one conference of 2019.